So Ephesians chapter 3, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We'll begin reading from chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. <clears throat> this also is God's word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. <clears throat> now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word reminds us of who you are, that you are a God who cannot be contained by our thoughts and our imaginations. Father, that you are so far beyond what we can ask or imagine, and that when you answer, you so far exceed our expectations. Forgive us, Father, for having too small a view of you. And Father, we pray that you would grow us in our understanding of who you are, that we would come to expect and to hope great things of you, trusting that you answer far beyond what we ask or imagine. Father, we pray for your people and for your church that we would be those who think such great thoughts of you. Father, we pray if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray that you would do a mighty work of transformation, heart transformation. And Father, we pray in thanks that you freely offer to sinners the forgiveness of sins. We pray that your son, Jesus, will be exalted. We pray that your ser servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever been in a situation with, whether it be a family member or a friend, a neighbor, an acquaintance, where you, so to say, you overstepped, you overstepped the, the barrier, the imaginary barrier, where you may have asked for a favor, and then you came to realize that favor was far too great. And the person, you can imagine how awkward it might be, right? How, how do they say no to you kindly? Or maybe, maybe the response would actually be one of, of anger, uh, of outrage, right? That you would ask such a thing. And per perhaps the request would be a, a minor thing, right? But you, you come to see that maybe your relationship, uh, your familiarity, uh, wasn't quite ready for that. Have you ever thought in your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought that this barrier is so big, so high, and so insurmountable? Have you ever thought that, Lord Jesus... I can't ask of you much because you never deliver and you're, you're tight-fisted. You know, the scriptures warn us about that. We're never to think of our God as, as this, uh, uh, this evil master who reaps where he does not sow. Right? You think about that, that slave that was condemned. That we ought to think great thoughts about our God and trust that he is one who delivers mightily, far beyond what we ask or imagine. That there's, there's not this point that we can say, oh, oh boy, I've made a mistake. I've asked of our God simply too much. 
And we have such fine proof of that in that our, our Lord God is the one who graciously offered up his son Jesus on behalf of sinners. What more proof do we need? Here we have in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, this is, this is the prayer. It begins with, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is the Apostle Paul praying on behalf of the Ephesians. That all of these Pauline epistles, all the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, will follow this pattern. That he begins by, in his letter by telling God's people, this is who God is and what he has done for you. And there's a transition at some point in his letters where he then says, hey, because this is who God is and this is what he did for you, this then is how you ought to live. This then is how you ought to be changed, transformed. And we have right here in, in Ephesians chapter 3, specifically verses 20 to 21, we have that transition. This is, this is basically the edge where uh, Ephesians 1 to 3 covers who God is, what he's done for you. And Ephesians 4 through 6 is this then is how you ought to live. The prayer then is the transition. He's praying for these people. This is what God has done for you. And he's saying, hey, this then, I'm about to tell you how you ought to live. And in verses 20 and 21, he's praying for these people. Be filled with all the fullness of God. And, and then in verses 20 and 21, he ends his prayer. Appropriately, the end of every one of our prayers should be doxology, should be giving glory to God. <clears throat> as, as if being filled with all the fullness of God as if we could describe that adequately, we can't. As if that wasn't enough. Here, the Apostle Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Meaning, we can't understand what to be filled with all the fullness of God means. But even though we can't, here he's saying, But our God is able to do far more than we ask or think. Even beyond that. So here we have in this these two verses, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. May every prayer of yours end in doxology. For God does, not, does far beyond what you request or can comprehend. May every prayer of yours end in doxology. For God does far beyond what you request or can comprehend. We'll look at this in two points. First, may God who, to whom all glory is due, verse 20. And second, the glory due to God, verse 21. So the first point. The God to whom all glory is due. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. <clears throat> so here we have this, this prayer in Ephesians three fourteen to 21. That Paul makes several of these petitions. That you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There in Ephesians three sixteen, And here it's a reminder that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work within you. And then in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this dwelling is not a brief visit. He, Jesus doesn't just show up, right? He comes, and then after an hour, you serve him tea, and then you... you Usher him out the door saying, hey, that's enough. Uh, I'll call upon you when I want you again. No, no. He comes and makes a permanent dwelling in our hearts. That he doesn't leave. 
right? Because we're continually welcoming him, right? It's an honor to have the Lord Jesus in your heart. We would never ask him to leave, right? We ask him to remain and remain forever, which he does. The second half of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here, perhaps this is difficult for some of you to understand. Because you, this, this queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm just a poor boy, I'm just a poor girl, nobody loves me, right? This, this, is, this is the thought that goes through your head all the time, right? This is the thought sometimes that goes through my head, right? But, don't let, that, don't let that refrain stick in your head. Here, that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's you. That's you. This is, this is the scripture speaking to you. This is God and the Holy Spirit speaking to you that you're grounded in the love of Jesus Christ. Even in the world, if, if father and mother should disown you, you'd say, hey, disown me. We have, we're grounded in the love of Jesus Christ. Right? So, so then if, if someone else who's supposed to love you says, hey, if you don't do this, 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 and this, then I disown you. And, and if those are illegitimate things, then we would say, okay, well then, that's fine. I, I, I can do without that. We have the love of Jesus Christ. That is far sufficient for us. He continues. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Oh, here, this is the Apostle Paul in his doxology, in his prayer, that he's starting to talk gibberish, so to say. He's starting to talk, talk about oxymorons, contradict, what appears like contradictions, that you would be able to comprehend the love that is incomprehensible. Right? The love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you would know that which surpasses knowledge. You realize that he continues in this funny talk, right? Because here, at some point, language, it, it, runs, it runs out of um, expression, right? So he, he does that also here in verses 20 and 21. This, that God would do far more abundantly. I mean, far exceedingly abundantly of what we ask or think. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God there in verse 19. That God would fill you. Fill you to overflowing. Here, you think about your life. That in your life, that we were born physical. Right? We're physical beings. That we... We didn't have to be taught, well, you're hungry, so start crying loudly at the top of your lungs. And then this person will feed you. And when you have a mess, cry loudly, and they'll change you. And you think about how, how this works. And over time, you, you think, well, this person's life, everything that you need, you, 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 you know what you do to serve yourself at some point, right? You, you have to provide for yourself. And you think about this living according to the fleshly, physical nature. That's, that's first nature. This is, this is what we understand. Even infants can do that. But then, you think about your new life in Jesus Christ. And what this passage, what this prayer is describing, what the Apostle Paul is telling you to do is, hey, listen, you need to start thinking according to this spiritual nature. That your judgment must not be by the eye of flesh. Your judgment must be by your eye of faith. That there is a spiritual nature to you. That perhaps 
most of your life or some of your life you did not acknowledge. But he's saying, in order for that spiritual life to thrive, there are certain things that must happen. There are certain ways that you have to stop doing. Certain ways that you have to start doing. Here, when you think about nurturing the spiritual life, you think about these means of grace, primarily the word, the sacraments, and prayer. You can add to that fellowship. Being in God's word, meditating upon his word, hearing the word preached, studying the word. Here, as if the request to be filled with all the fullness of God, as if that were not enough, Paul closes with this doxology, or he, he finishes his prayer with this doxology above and beyond this, Paul is confident that our God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So here he's saying, these are the things that have to happen in the life of the Ephesians, in your life and my life. And then there's God, who does far beyond, far exceeding what we can ask or think. Here, you and I have to immediately admit, immediately admit that we have too too small a view of God. Here, I'm reminded during the recent VBS that we had, this children's song, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that my God cannot do. Right? You know what? Children understand this. You know what? I, I would think even, you, you look at Jesus' commendation of children. If, if only you and I would have childlike faith. Hey, this was the problem. Was it not that, that we, over, over our lives, we, we learn about all the obstacles, right? We start to come up with all the skepticism, right? This, is, this was exactly what happened with Moses. We read earlier in Numbers chapter 11. We have too limited a view of God. We have too meager too lowly a view. We, we, have, we have an insulting view of our God. Think for a moment about the Eastern kings. We have at least two that I can think of, two examples of this, where these Eastern kings were, were proud men, right? And, and, and there, there was these opportunities given. You know, you have King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, chapter 5. He, he sees his queen, Esther, She's, her face is downcast because of this decree, right, that Haman uh, uh, helped, to, helped to arrange about the destruction of the Jews, right? And King Ahasuerus says to his queen, yeah, Queen Esther, what is your request? It, will, it shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom, right? So this eastern king, these great king's rulers, they wanted to be known for their generosity. Hey, what is it you'd like? Up to half my kingdom. See, the same thing with Herod, right? So Herod, John the baptizer, told him publicly, hey, you cannot have your brother's wife, right? So he says, this is wrong. So Herodias, his brother's wife, was obviously upset about this. Herod, before all his, his uh, generals and the the uh, influencing people of the land. He makes this promise. He says to Herodias' daughter, who had this dance, ask, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She probably should have asked for half his kingdom. Instead, she asked for the head of John the baptizer, severed head on a plate, right? So here we, we, we think about these Eastern kings, how 
They wanted to be known for their generosity. And it would be an insult if we were offered this, but we, we said, hey, can I, can I just have, uh, you know, uh, I, can I just have a cup of water? Or can I just have a, a, a piece of bread? It would be an insult. He's saying, half my kingdom. And, and you see here, we have God, who is far exceeding in wealth than all of these eastern kings combined. Not even close. And you think about our God. You realize that our God is far more eager and ready to answer you, to give to you, to bless you, than you and I are ready to desire it, or to ask of it, or to receive it. We have to grasp this concept. God's far more ready to give than we are to receive. He gives this illustration. Hey, your parents, right? You think they're good parents, right? You know what your children need. You know what's good for them, right? If any of them ask you for uh, you know, a fish, would you give them a snake? Or if they ask for bread to eat, would you give them a rock? And God says, hey, you're a heavenly father. He's far more wise. He's far more generous, right? He's more, far more ready to give to you. Here, we go back to this neg- negative example of Moses. <clears throat> Moses starts reasoning. This is, this is called wrong use of intellect. God gives men intellect not to be used in this way. Right? So here, God's saying, hey, not a, not a day, not two days, not a week, not 20 days, 30 days, for a whole month. You people, right? It starts out by saying the people complain in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. So you, you see, his, this is already going the wrong trajectory, right? So they're, they're taking their misfortunes and their dissatisfactions and bringing them before God. And it comes out in the form of, you haven't given us this. They weren't saying, God, for 40 years, for 40 years, that's, most, that's more than many of you have been alive, 40 years. For 40 years. That's six days a week, minus one, on the Sabbath. God never missed a day in providing them manna. That miraculously, manna came down, and it was there on the ground, ready for people to gather. And instead, they were asking for meat. And here, for a whole month, God says to Moses, I'm going to give my people meat until it comes out of your nostrils. Moses begins to reason, hmm, 600,000 men on foot, and this is not including women and children, at least 2 million, let's just say. You think about women, children added, 2 million. And then he talks about, uh, hey, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Here, he's, he's starting to use his intellect to reason. God, it can't possibly be enough. 2 million people, right? All the fish of the sea? Impossible. And God's challenge to Moses. Numbers 11.23, And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Right? Is his his hand too short? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Right? And, And, you know, it's not just Moses. You look at Christ's disciples. Four Gospels, four accounts. Feeding of the 5,000. The incident was recorded by every one of the Gospels. That Jesus had been teaching publicly a multitude of people. And he's, he's thinking, well, they need food to eat. 
right? And, and some of the disciples were thinking, well, we should send them out to the villages where they can buy food, but it was late. So then the challenge, Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat, right? And he said it to test them. And here they were wondering, 200 denarii, right? So, you know, you think about, well, something close to uh, on the order of uh, a year's wages, right? If a denarius was a day's wage, right? 200 denarii, denarius, uh, 200 denarii, that would be like about a year or something less. He said it to test them. And, and they're saying even 200 denarii would not be enough for everyone to have a little, like, but a bite. But instead, they should be asking, hey, Jesus, you can provide. Please, provide us fish and bread. Oh, okay, that's enough about Moses and Christ's disciples. What about for you? What about for me? Are there instances in your life where in your thoughts... In your prayers and your requests, that instead of our God being exceedingly great, that we look at him and we isolate him to be something exceedingly small and, and, it's, and insignificant. Here, we, we think about some of these, uh, you probably sat through them, performance reviews, right? And, and you, you think about, they don't give letter grades, right? They give this, does not meet expectations, Meets expectations, exceeds expectations, consistently exceeds expectations. What is your view of God? What performance review does he get? It should always be consistently exceeds far abundantly our expectations. This is what God says that his review from you ought to be. So consistently far exceeding abundant expectations of you and me. This is where these odd language and superlatives come in. Far more abundantly or exceedingly more abundantly. It's like you're asking a child. And you ask how much. And he says super duper. uh, You know something beginning with that. Or you know here. I remember as a kid, I had this term, infinity times infinity, right? That's before I really learned math. Instead, we ought to say infinity to the infinity power, right? Infinity, the exponent of infinity, right? But that's still infinity. But here, you have to come up with some understanding, right? Infinity to the infinity power is what we ought to understand about our God because he is infinite. Perhaps some of you are ready to question me and say, wait a minute. God doesn't exceed, he doesn't exceed my expectations. You gotta ask yourself why? Why why doesn't God exceed your expectations? Perhaps it could be that your expectations and your di- desires are a little bit less than holy and upright. Are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? We have it all the time. Right? We have the health, wealth, and happiness gospel, right? That, hey, you know, you follow Jesus Christ, all of your problems will go away, right? In fact, hey, anyone who's been in the Christian life knows that from the day you start following Jesus Christ, your problems don't go away, they multiply, right? Because this is how God teaches you. This is how God instructs you about your dependence, my dependence upon him, right? They don't go away. He increases them. Here, you think about your desires. James 4 warns us about them. 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is a warning. If we're saying, you know what? You're wrong. What you're preaching is wrong. Well, you have to, you have to explain to me how what I'm preaching is not what the Word of God here is saying. If you were to say that the Word of God is wrong, then that's another matter. If you're asking, because you're asking for your own pleasures, for your own selfishness, for your own ease, then this is why God's not meeting your expectations, because that's never what He promised you. He promised you sufficiency. Here we think also about according to the power at work within us. According to the power at work within us. <coughs> it, would be, it would be a dangerous thing if God simply said, here you are, and you're left to yourself, and I've given you no resources, and there's heaven. Climb to it. But he doesn't say that. He promises you great things that Jesus has already prepared a place in heaven for you. So he doesn't say earn it. He says it's already been earned for you. And you, it's not by anything that you've done to earn it. It's Jesus who earned it on behalf of a sinner. And he also said, and by the way, I'm giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here, you think about how what God does on behalf of sinners is that he does a work of transformation. The loves that you once have, had, the, ones, the loves that you once had, he changes them. True power. True power is witnessed in the breaking of the bondage of sin. Do you ever see people, you see their lives, and you see them and say, hey, this habit, this cycle is going to kill you. It will destroy you. It will destroy you spiritually. It will destroy you physically. It's dangerous. We realize that the power of the Holy Spirit is in every Christian. That is what frees us from the bondage to sin and death. It's not that God says, believe upon nothing. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within you. He has not left you as an orphan. He has not said, he says, this, is, this is what Satan, Satan comes in here and says, you've been abandoned. Right? That's, that's Satan's message. You've been deserted. You've been abandoned. You've, you've been hated. You've been used. God's promises are far greater. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The Holy Spirit has been given to God's people as a deposit. It's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. It's a guarantee that he is at work within you. And we think about how this view, this power, this exceedingly far abundance, beyond what we ask or think God, how it applies to your prayers. Here, if it's the case that you do not have because you do not ask, here, think about this. Oftentimes, your prayers and my prayers are limited by our sense of need. 
that we don't think we need much, so we don't ask for much. This, in turn, might be due to the mistaking of your true condition, of my true condition. Since we don't fully understand that, it's our ignorance, right? We don't ask for the things that we truly need. Faith is necessary for Christ to work. He who thinks great things about God will receive great things from God. You think about Jesus going to Nazareth, his hometown. Hey, isn't this this the son of Mary and Joseph whom we know? Why, why Why would we believe him? A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And we're told, Mark 6, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Here, where is God going to work? God is going to work where his people trust in him. When we pray and ask great things of God. Here, this applies to our prayers. Regarding our prayers. James 4 speaks about how, hey, we often have presumption in our prayers. But a very good principle. We, we have a saying, if the Lord wills. The scriptures talk about that. And here, we ask for specifics in prayer, yes. But whatever we ask, we always should have in our hearts a readiness to receive something else. Understanding that it's never something lesser. It's always something greater than what we ask. God is one who does far above what we ask for. Sometimes he gives us what we ask for. Usually he gives us something far beyond that. Here, a simple example of that. Think about how children often wander far from home. Far from home in the wrong way. We call our prodigals, right? And you think about people in the neighborhood who are just plain ornery, right? Um, and how often do we say, oh, we wouldn't pray for that person, right? He's not, he's not the ideal candidate to receive the gospel. And you ask, is there any such thing as an ideal candidate to receive the gospel, right? Was the Apostle Paul, he was the ideal candidate not to receive it. And here, the persecutor of the church, the blasphemer, right, and the violent aggressor becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. It's a reminder to us that we ought to pray diligently for those who are outside of Christ, especially those who are the prodigals, that we ought to be persistent in prayer and not give up. So this is the first point, the God to whom all glory is due. But the second point, the glory due to God in verse 21 To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Here we have this glory being spoken of. We have in our hymnal, we have doxologies, right? That they are an expression of praise unto God. So we think about the the wording doxa means glory, right? And ology or logi either the science or study of, or logi is the word or statement. So it's a word or statement of glory unto God. 
And here, you ought to understand that uh, there's, there's often a dumbing down of language, that glory, glorious, that it's often used in our everyday language in, in ways that are uh, dumbing down. They're inferior. Right? You talk to people, right? They'd say, oh, hey, wouldn't it be glorious if this person, this political candidate, made it to office, were elected to office? I don't know who that candidate is. It doesn't matter. What I can say is, is there's nothing glorious about anyone being elected to office. Doesn't matter. It's not glorious. Perhaps a meal that you ate that someone might say, oh, this meal was glorious. No, it may have been delicious. It wasn't glorious. God alone is glorious. And we think about the cheapening of these common terms that it must not be so. Hey, you think about even the matter of glory. What does it even mean? What our older way in address address that question? Not it is not as if we could easily answer it. That praise is we, we express who God is, what he has done. And you know, Spurgeon described praise as a river. It's a river flowing. And he says, well, what is, what is glory or what is adoration? And he says, it's that river far, far exceeding, overflowing its banks. Right? It's going over the top and overflowing its banks. A flood. This description of a flood. Now that is glory. That is, that is giving adoration to God. Here, the significant change that has happened, is happening, should be happening in your life is the change of the object glorified. Your life before Christ was a life of self-service, self-worship, self-glorification. But then we have something such as Psalm 115.1 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We think about the injustices of life. We need to stop thinking about it in terms of that was an injustice done to me. How often do we think about, hey, that was an injustice done to God. That this was an offense to God. Most, most people see things in a self-centered way. Hey, that offends me. But how often do we think, no, you know what? This is an offense to God. Here, you think about the end of Jesus' life. The end of Jesus' life. His disciples. Jesus about, is about to commission them. And he's trained them for about three years. And, and he's about to go to the cross. And these disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest. And you ask, is he going to say, oh no, I'm going to need another 10 years to work on this one. He goes, right? There's change. That they're changed men. They're men who, was it all but one of them, died the death of a martyr. Here we think about God's glory. To him be glory in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The gathering of the redeemed. And we acknowledge that the visible church is yet imperfect. But here, this very idea of Christians not being 
all by themselves. They ought not to be alone. They ought not to be separated. This is the very concept of coals, right? You, you ever started a, a barbecue, right? That there's that chimney device. And coals, especially coals on top of each other, heat up faster. They stay warm. But if you take that burning hot coal and you set it aside away from the pile, well, what happens to it? It burns out quickly. So also with Christians. You think about how uh, the Apostle Paul said earlier in this Ephesians 3, that they may, they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. Meaning that there's something about being among God's people, with God's people, a corporate understanding of Christ's love and also of giving glory to God. Meaning, if, if a Christian were to be converted, but he never joined the church, he was never part of the activity of the church and the worship of Christ in the church, he would have a stunted spiritual growth. His understanding of the glory of God, his understanding about the love of God, it, they would be stunted. Here, the unified voice of God's people. You think about how God's power is manifested and that he calls sinners out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Power is manifested and changed life. You think about how in the world they can deal with, you know, the typical, uh, the, the law enforcement spends 90% of their time dealing with like less than 10% of the people, right? I mean, that's, that's a general statistic, right? Especially in a small town, right? That uh, the bum, the vagrant, right? The, the people who, who are doing petty theft, they're going to they're take up so much time of, of people. And, and, and you think about what, what the world has. They have the power of the sword, they have power to find. And you think about genuine change, right? It, it's only in the church where you say, hey, the gospel has genuine change. And this is what God does by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, we think also God's glory in Christ. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. God manifests his wisdom in sending his only begotten son to the cross. He doesn't send him, he doesn't send him on the red carpet. He doesn't send him to the five-star hotel. He sends him to the shameful death of the cross. God in his wisdom did that. God in his generosity did that on behalf of sinners. God's power is manifested in raising Jesus from the dead. God's glory is manifested in his saving of people for himself who are eager to do good deeds. Do you believe in this good news? Do you believe in this gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? He alone is able to save by a, a great salvation, so great a salvation. You think about the things that we can ask God for. Perhaps there was a point in your life where it was such a huge step for you even to think of asking God, God, will you please forgive me for my sins? Right? That's a big step for people. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that as great of a sinner as I am, God is willing to forgive my sins, that, that Jesus' death on the cross covers all of my sins. 
And then, then there's this idea, no, no, wait a minute, there can't, be, there can't be a sacrifice that great to cover for the sins of someone, and hey, don't, don't waste your time with that, right? Jesus proclaimed himself as the savior of the world, right? If you, if you say, hey, he's, he's not sufficient to pay for your sins, then you're insulting, you're, you're calling him a liar that he is not the savior. And a savior who doesn't save is no savior at all. But it is a big step, it's a first step. But you realize that God does far more abundantly than what we can ask or think. And so, I tell you, I encourage you, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, trust in Him and His offer that He gladly calls sinners, come. He says, sinners, come. That you might feast. That you might drink from His fountain. That you would willingly bring all of your sins to Him. He puts them on the cross and all of His righteousness He freely gives to you. That this is indeed an exceedingly great offer. An offer that you will receive from nobody else. You think about how God's promises are always sure. His promises never fail. All of His promises are yea and amen in His perfect Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not just now. It's through all all generations. That we as Americans think only in the now, right? It's rather recent. In other countries, other cultures, they've been around for thousands of years, right? Was it uh, some of the oldest recorded histories are what, six or seven thousand years? But the United States has been around less than 300 years, right? And we tend to forget things so readily, right? When in other parts of the world, they remember things for, for many, many generations, right? Here, we need to stop thinking about the now. We need to start thinking about the long term. We've got to think about and pray for the generations to come that they will bring glory to our God. You realize that your, your example, <coughs> excuse me, your example, whether good or bad, will have a lasting effect not only on the next generation, but on the many generations to come. Right? Because your actions bear upon the generations that are present, right? the second, first, second, third generations after you, those who are alive. But then what happens with them in following your example has effects on the generations that come after. And so we see here God's plan is that he would not merely save a sinner. That his plan was that he would save a lineage, he would save a line. You think about this forever and ever. The throng in heaven, angels and men, giving glory to God for all eternity. That eternity won't be enough time to give praise and glory to God. And he finishes here. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You think about this, amen. It's your affirmation of the truth of what is stated. That when we have worship, that Elder Wayne or I lead in prayer, it's not you're passive, you're active, you're listening. And that your amen at the end is an affirmation of what we pray. And we think about how this amen, that you and I should all be saying amen in this doxology, this giving glory to our God. Here we think about how this word is a challenge to us. 
May you and I not be hampered by meager thoughts about our God. That we ought to think great thoughts about our God. And he's never less than your expectations or imaginations. In fact, he far, far exceeds even the best thoughts that we have of him. That may you and I grow in our prayer lives, a greater sense of our need, and that we would ask great things of him. That you and I should be hopeful about our expectations, that they would be far exceeded, even beyond our grandiose requests and imaginations. Here, regarding glory, that part of your new life is death to the old self. Self Self-worship, self-service, self-glorification, those are being done with. That God is your new object to glorify. He is worthy of praise and honor and glory. It's a reminder to us also of what God is doing for all eternity. God is seeking worshipers. That those who will give him glory. The training begins here in this life. But what we will do, we will then do perfectly. And we'll do it for an eternity. And that eternity will not be enough time to give glory to our God. It's not as if after infinity times infinity years that we would say, you know what? I think we're done glorifying God. It simply won't be enough time. We think about how we have various friends in our lives. Perhaps you've crossed some social barrier, committed some faux pas, and asking too much of them, of a favor. But reminded again that with our God, You can never ask too much. That he is a God who is exceedingly great. That he is far beyond our thoughts and our expectations. That he is far more generous than we are ready to receive. And we're thankful that we worship such a God. That we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God.